I, I didn't want to perpetuate the myth that the French aren't easy to meet or I, I think that's not true at all and I certainly feel this particular area people are a little bit more open maybe but um, and maybe that's partly why I stayed because I felt like it was a little bit more like home for me but but I recognize something here that that when I do leave and when I'm here I say home I mean America because it's my past home but when I'm out and about in the world that I say home, I mean this place. Hello and welcome to I Am French with me, Karen French. Six years ago I packed up my life in London and I moved to rural France. It's been a challenge. This is a podcast where I talk to other non-Frenchies who've chosen to settle here in France. Each week, my guest and I will discuss the joys and challenges that come with living in a different country and share stories of our adventures in La France. Beyond the fantasy, I'm interested in the real experiences of living here, with its frustrations, wonders and hilarity. The process of uprooting ourselves is not a small thing, and nor is putting down new roots. Here we discuss how we have each navigated this journey. Happy New Year, everyone. Before I introduce our first guest of 2021, I just wanted to let you know a couple of things. First up, you can catch my episode on Expat Families podcast, where I talk about my journey of coming to France and all that's happened since I've lived here. Uh, just so you know, it's, it is in French, and it's a great conversation about being an immigrant in France and parenting. The link's in the show notes, and even if I, even if you're still figuring out French, go check it out and see if you, you can understand. I hope you enjoy it. Also, I'm going to be growing my Patreon community this year with exclusive podcast interviews, um, episodes, and content, where we can come together as a community of immigrants to talk about, well, I don't know, all the things. But mostly it will be about, I think, the intersection between being an immigrant and well-being, I'm still working on the details, but stay tuned and more on this to come. Let's get 2021 off to a great start with the absolutely delightful Kate Hill. She's a cook, a teacher and a writer who's lived in France for over 30 years. She has the most original arrival story um, as she arrived here by barge. And she talks about how she slowly descended into France and observed all the changes as she gradually arrived in Gascony in the southwest of France, which is where she's based now. I just feel it's like the perfect metaphor for how she has slowly become integrated into French life and meeting friends and learning the language and, and feeling at home over the course of 30 years. We talk about COVID and pivoting to online and the challenges and opportunities that have come with that. And when we spoke, Kate, Kate was sitting in front of a warm fireplace with her dogs who make an appearance at some point. And, and when we started the call, we just got talking straight away about the pandemic and the differences between the US and here. And, and I just pressed record. So we start right off at the deep end talking about identity. So please enjoy Miss Kate Hill. As we were just talking about um, the differences between COVID here and COVID in in the, the United States, I, I'm going to start there, which is that having lived in France for so long, how do you, how do you look at America differently now? Well, it is different now. It, it, I mean, it's different 
I think what's going on in America, maybe it's more visible now than it ever was. Mm. I think I, I lived once as an example, um, 30 years ago before I came to France. Uh, I, or yeah, 30 years ago, I lived in a community, small coastal town up on the North coast of California, very beautiful, right on the water. Um, about four hours north of San Francisco. And in the, there were two little towns. I lived in one, and the town next door um, was five, five kilometers away. It wasn't far at all. But they tended to segregate, and the liberals, the you know refugees from New York and Los Angeles and San Francisco lived in this one little town, and working people from the area, that there were uh, lumber mills, et cetera, lived in the other town. And every election, local election, county officials, hospital board, et cetera, would be split exactly down the middle, be 49% to 51, and then the next time it would flip 51 to 49. And it was like that all the time. And I, so when I see what's happened in America now, I think that, that that split's always been there, but it's more vocal now. And we see as people have an opportunity to talk on the internet, to show their, um, their opinions mm. on international television, not just national television. We see it more on both sides, and it really shows what a divided country perhaps it's the same here in france as well i mean the the extremes are very vocal the people in between maybe not so much mm -hmm. i i feel as i look at it i feel like i'm looking at it from further afar than ever before maybe because i haven't been home i could consider home the united states not any one place but just i haven't been home in over a year now because of of the situation here I would normally have gone and also worked in the states I work and do workshops so I haven't done any of that for over a year mm. and looking at far is very um discourage it's, it's uh discouraging and and you know I voted from here I was able to there's a very active um uh democrats abroad i've you know i'm out i'm a democrat right? yeah uh they they uh but they're very good at them you know at, at following you up and have do you need anything can we help have you voted have you got your ballot etc mm. so that really was really great for me yeah I can imagine. but it's sad it's sad and i in talking about covid we you know as we were we talk about this every day, but almost I look and see what's happening in the sense of w Americans got to have this idea of freedom. I can do whatever I want. I certainly grew up thinking that I could do whatever I want as long as I didn't hurt anybody else. But I don't think it's serving us very well. Whereas I find in France, people are, are on some things, people are more willing to toe the line and say, okay, you know, uh, yes, I will have my paper, my attestation. Yes, mm -hmm. I will wear my mask. Uh, you know, not everybody wants to, but in general, they do. I don't see people with at the supermarket. I don't see people. The only place I'm going these days, yeah, without masks. Americans can be a little obstinate that way, and I don't think it's helping anybody. Yeah, it seems definitely um, complicated over there right now. It's interesting yeah. you said about um, home. 
Um, my my husband called me French the other day. Well, you're French, aren't you? And I just bristled a little, yeah. kind of like, well, no, I actually don't feel. But then you think I don't feel French. But then how do you how do you measure that? You know. And so I'm interested that you've been here over thirty years, and but you still refer to uh, the states as home. Yeah, and it's funny. I don't have a house. I've ne- I've not lived there. Um, I'm where my family lives in the East Coast in Boston, Philadelphia area. I've never lived. I always lived on the West Coast. We were raised on the West Coast. So that my family um, that's in the States all live somewhere I've never lived. I still think of it as going home because mm. it's to be the family, number one. Um, number two is I, I do feel, oh, and maybe even more so than ever, feel really American because when you remove the everyday trappings, of things that people see, think of as, you know, as typically British or typically American or typically French, you know, know, the baguette and the barret, if you're in the States or, you know, people think of, and people, I don't, you know, there's so many things people think of as, you know, what Americans are like, but I am American. And what formed me was those beliefs in my family. And, and so Living here, it almost exposes that more than if I lived in the States. I'd, mm. In the States, I'd just be one of everybody who's American. So here I'm like mega American and I have to speak <laughs> my whole country. <laughs> mega American, that's brilliant. Yeah, and I don't, I'm not a very political person. So I, I mean, I've never talked about it. I, just assumed I was on the right side, like all of us do, right? But sure. but I do feel that I have to speak out a bit more and I'm more confident in my views because I see what's happening. Mm. And I have young people in my family, my great nieces and nephews, who nephews who I um I worry about their future. I wonder are they getting I mean, I'm confident that they've gotten the right kind of upbringing to be make good decisions but i worry for their future now yeah i never had to worry about that before yeah it's um it's definitely uh an intense time isn't it everywhere there's a lot at stake in yeah, even even the weather is being naughty. You know, I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, the hurricanes battering. You know, these poor places that have had thirty hurricanes this year. I can't imagine. And here we are. Well, I said earlier, such a beautiful, beautiful November morning, but it's we've not had a drop of rain, and it's that's not. But that doesn't bode well for us to not have any rain this month yet. Mm. So, so I I'm aware of. That, you know, there are patterns, whether patterns over the year, you know, over centuries, eons, so, but we're seeing extreme things, and I'm aware of that too. So, yeah. so it's all, you know, COVID, the economy, politics, whether everybody's being, seems battered. And I think it's very hard to reach in and find that positive, calm place that helps us stay, you know, on track. For sure. It's so needed, though, isn't it? Because it yes, you can get lost in I the think, news cycle. I, and yes, and I see what what I see happening with my um, friends and colleagues and my former students or wannabe students is that we try to we turn to each other for more. So, in a funny way, I feel more connected with some of these people that I that I don't talk to very often. Now we're talking all the time. 
because we're trying to figure out how to do a Zoom meeting, how to do a webinar, how to pull people together in a sense of community mm. that if we can't get together physically, but uh, you can at least reach out. And I think people are in this time of uncertainty turning to things they are certain about, which is they're going to eat every day, mostly. They, yeah. So cooking is a wonderful diversion as well as a practical thing. Like I like to remind my younger students, it's a life skill. You need to know how to cook. For sure. And you have been running these online classes now because you've um, um, pivoted quite uh, quite magnificently on to go online after running workshops and classes in person for for years, right? Right. Yeah. It, and I have to say, I've I've done it n- not. Uh, not reluctantly, but I sort of have held back until I felt more confident on that I could, you know, chew gum and dance at the same time, which was work the the computer machines and the phones and the iPads and cook cassoulet at the same time. I knew I could, I know I can teach. I knew I could do it within a set time frame. I knew I had people who would reach out, would want to do that with me. But I wasn't sure that how I could manage. And because we're still under lockdown, really, was by myself. So here I am in this 18th century kitchen, all Wi-Fi'd up with <laughs> my various devices on piles of books and little stands and talking to myself. You know, actually, there were about 22 people, my first cook-along class, which was a live class. But I... I feel that it's more important than ever to be flexible. And as you said, pivot is sort of the optimal word, but I I like that word um, to be nimble, Mm. that you can jump over, not just turn, but you can actually jump over something and get it out of the way. And and I knew for me, uh, I won't do many live classes because the time frame for most of my clients are either in North America or, you know, six to nine hours behind me, or in Australia, 10 or 11 hours ahead of me. So I'm putting my energy into creating some videos that will then be my online cooking courses. And I'm going to do it just like I would do here. If you came for five days here, there's a progression in what you learn, and you bet you, whether you're an experienced cook or you're a novice cook, you still have some build an arc of the the learning takes place over several days as you you remember and pull back on things. So rather than just a one-shot class, uh, um, although I'm st- going to do cassoulet classes all winter because that it is fun to do and it seems more like a party, mm. but I'm also uh, producing some very simple videos that will, will help people cook along. That's brilliant. That sounds amazing. So you can take, um, so if it, you're a beginner, that'll still work. And if you're pretty experienced, it's still, you, do you offer different different levels of uh, class? Yeah, people often would ask me when they were going to come to France and take one of my, my courses, you know, I, I've never cooked before, or I'm a very experienced cook. I know what I'm doing. I'm like, but you will learn you will learn to your level. You will, if you're a beginner, you may not see the very subtle things that I might, you know, do. Or I try to point out 
things as I, I learn them, but it can also be overwhelming when you're a beginner. There's so many little things, mm. but if you're an experienced cook and I often have people who they've been cooking for their families or, and I also teach a lot of professionals. So when the professional chefs come, the chefies, mm. I, I don't have a problem teaching them because they have to open their eyes. They have to taste things in a different way. I want to explain why something, why people do something a certain way here and tie it to this area, to this, this, um, this Gascon culture, this mm. food culture that exists here. And so no matter what level you come in at, you're going to come away with something. It's up to you to apply it. Brilliant. I always say to my, my younger students particularly, I can teach you, but you have to learn. Mm. So <laughs> that's a great distinction, isn't it? Um, so in, when we did our pre-chat, I asked you why you came to France and you said the actual, the, be the better question is why you stayed. And so I'm going to ask you to tell your story of how you came because I think most of us just got on a plane and, or drove here, but you have a rather, <laughs> you have a rather unique way of 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 arriving in France so if you could tell us how you came to France but then and then we'll move on to why you stayed yeah i um well i arrived in this part of france in the very southwest by barge along the canals and the rivers uh that thread all over this country it's some it's probably france's most un um, unspoken treasure are the is the water, the rivers in the water system that exist here. Uh, but I had bought a canal boat, a, a, a Dutch barge, 85 feet, 25 meters. It's big no matter how you measure it. Yeah. And uh, with 65 tons, cast iron, riveted hull, built in the 1800s and uh, refurbished in the 60s. And I bought it from a very nice Dutch family and then sailed with my friends and cohorts at the time, uh, sailed uh, south from Holland through Belgium into Northern France. So we just kept going until we ran out of canal, which was all the way down here, sort of on this cul-de-sac that had uh, the Canal de Garonne that heads to Bordeaux. Wow. And when I, when I did that, I traveled in France briefly before, but I... It was moving across the country at this sort of eight kilometers an hour, five miles an hour, just crawling. And I always had this image of a of an escargot, you know, crawling across the country, gathering mm. up. And that was when my my sense of when my cooking lessons, when my education in French food started, right at the border, as we crossed from Belgium into France everything changed and I looked sort of like looked behind me because I could almost see right where I've come from to where I was and the sense of approach to food and in region by region was so distinct when you move that slowly mm. you know if you fly across the country you don't see it if you go by a high-speed train you know, it's three hours three and a half hours from Paris now to Ajan by mm. TV. It, it took me seven weeks. So as you crawl across the country on a barge through the canals and the rivers, you see it very, very differently. And that was why I was I wasn't in a hurry to leave. 
And I very quickly found this little spot on the canal that I could park my boat and have water and electricity and not be in in a town, a noisy town with other boats all around. I love the tranquility of what we used to call wild mooring out, out in the middle of nowhere. You just throw your ropes around a tree and just, mm. you know, it was beautiful. And so when I found Kamant, um, one of my boat friends told me about this old farm that was for sale. Parts of it, they were parceling it all up. I came along, which was, again, an effort. It took me all day to get here. I had to take, I had to walk, take a bus, take a train. And then a friend picked me up and brought me out here. And the very first time I stepped foot on the property, I just, 50 feet away, the canal was in front of this old stone wreck of a building. The roof was gone. And there were brambles and nettles growing everywhere. You could it felt like Sleeping Beauty's castle. And I uh, and I just fell in love with the idea of living here, and or at least I thought temporarily throwing my you know my anchor here. But it, now it's been a long time. Right, that was nineteen eighty nine. So you lived in the barge while you did the house up. Oh, I lived in the barge completely. I huh. never intended to actually um, live in the house. That was just it was like a. It was like a dollhouse for me, a playhouse. And um, I lived on the barge. The, the house, so there's the pigeonier. There was a little piggery. There was a sort of a stone building that connected the pigeonier to the barn, big old barn with, you know, stalls in it. There was nothing in it. And the, and the house was just 80 square meters. And the barge was 100 square meters. It was warmer, insulated, comfortable, heated. I, why would I ever live in a house? And and uh, it was only years later, it was actually just about 10, 11 years ago that I moved off the barge and into the house. Wow. And then it was like, and then that became a project. My sister came to live with me. So we, I felt we needed sort of move, I needed to move ashore. And then with her efforts to support me and what I was doing, uh, I we restored the barn and created a modern house with inside that barn is where I sit now and speak to you and the boat is still parked down on the canal oh you still have it That's- I still have the boat I I the boat is for sale if anybody wants to <laughs> completely blown away by my description of living on board a boat you please come contact me yeah like gonna- 2020's busted me let's go and live on a boat there's gonna be yeah, it's a wonderful way it's a wonderful way to to live, and no, I lived on the boat. Um, yeah, I lived on the boat for twenty years, so it was. Uh, I was in no hurry to get off of it. I really was only just because I needed a bit more uh, space, mm. and and now you know, age and comfort and um, desire changes things, and so I my cruising days are I think over mm. I, I love to travel still but and I love to travel slowly but I'll let somebody else drive the barge yeah so um when you arrived you said that you did you already have friends there because I'm interested in that idea of well not the idea the actual reality of of when you land somewhere and then you're uh, introduction to the community and then your integration into the community. How's that been for you? Yeah, it was, 
Well, I think because I, um, I kind of, I saw myself and probably still do falsely, but, you know, I lived in a little bubble, the bubble being the barge and I was moving along and you say, hello, bonjour, you know, I'm Kate, blah, 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 bye, see you. And you, we would cross paths with other boats over and over. So you kind of had a boat family. Hmm. You would, over the years, you would see people and even my dog would recognize the engine sound of somebody we knew who had a dog. And so <laughs> it was very funny to see, sort of experience that. But most of my contacts on land in the in France in the, in the the local community were food contacts. It was when I went to the market, and the market was really important to me, not just as a cook and someone who learned what local buy local really means, but it was also a social event. Whether it was the indoor market in Agen or where I got some of my first sort of education in in cooking things like rabbit. I never had cooked a rabbit yeah. before. Um, and I, I wrote about that in my book, the first book, because that was instrumental in me learning to cook from the people who lived here. And so I had this sort of passing every week, uh, hello, I'd like a kilo of carrots and, you mm. know, whatever, with relationship with people that I manage in my rudimentary French. But... I wasn't until I kind of met a family, a French family, who also lived along the canal. That was the proximity. And they were involved in their community's effort to build a little alt-motique, a little stop along the canal for people. There would be a, a you know, water and then a, a bathhouse and things like that. And, mm-hmm. um, and then later a creperie and a restaurant. And, and I met this family um, who invited me and my friends to come up for an aperitif. And then it was sort of, I never left. They adopted me to the wholeheartedly. They thought, oh, there's nothing wrong with you. You just can't speak. And, so, <laughs> and, and really, when I think back to those early days, there was a lot of faith on both sides. But I, I would spend, when I wasn't uh, working or traveling on the boat, I parked at their village and I would go have lunch and later dinner with them, lunch and dinner every day for three or four weeks before I would leave the boat there. I would leave the boat there with their son Yanni to take care of over the winter. And I might go back to the States or might, you know, whatever I was doing, I went to the Caribbean one year to work on a yacht. Mm. And so I left the boat there. But what happened was every year I became more entrenched in their family but I learned French enough so that I could really be part, communicate with them and they could understand what I was doing. And through them, I met other people and then, and then it grows slowly, but you have to put yourself out there. And I think a lot of, a lot of uh, expats who come or people who buy houses here, they just, they, you know, they, they get just enough language to, you know, get the plumbing done or order wood for the fire, but mm. they're not comfortable about talking about their philosophy and their feelings. And mm. for me, it was really important. I wanted the Pompel family to know what I thought. How, and I wanted to be able to be articulate in French. Mm. I, I wanted to not be the butt of their jokes because their son, who was like a little brother to me, he loved making fun of me that I didn't know what he, they were talking about. And so I, I got motivated to talk more, to be more out there, because I 
I can be timid. I can be, I, I like to sit back and watch things happen. So to put myself out there is always an effort. Yeah. But I did that, and the reward was that I, I soon had this very extended, beautiful family, not only the, the Pompel family, but people in their village, and then my neighbors, after, when I bought this place, reaching out to me and including me in their lives. And I, I felt that, that I, I didn't want to perpetuate the myth that the French aren't, easy to meet or I, I think that's not true at all and I certainly feel this particular area people are a little bit more open maybe mm. but um and maybe that's partly why I stayed because I felt like it was a little bit more like home for me but but I recognize something here that that when I do leave and when I'm here I say home I mean America because it's my past home but when I'm out and about in the world that I say home, I mean this place, this mm. specific part of, you know, 100 square meters of France. Yeah. So um, those, um, that family that you, um, that you became integrated into really, are they the ones that taught you how to cook rabbit? Well, no, no, actually, uh, they, I'd say they too taught me to cook everything but the rabbit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mate is a wonderful cook, and she, um, it was funny, she and her husband were just uh, a few years old, five, she's five years older than me, but I always felt she was like my grandmother, in the sense that her life and uh, was based on her family and cooking every day, not just, you know, dinner, but cooking lunch when her husband and son came home for lunch, as here we do in France, a big, long, fully cooked two-hour lunch, yeah. and then again in the evening, and and she was such a she is such a great natural cook that I just sort of glommed on to whatever she was doing in the kitchen. I wanted to learn what she did and how she did it. But she's a very instinctive, intu intuitive cook, and so um, I had to watch to learn. She couldn't explain it to me. Yeah, and that's how I learned. It's <clears throat> Your dog's not happy we're talking. Yeah. <laughs> she, uh, Chica is uh, the newest member of my family. <laughs> She's still learning about being on podcasts. Chica, shh. It's a beautiful day. And even though we're on lockdown, sometimes people walk their dogs along the towpath, which yeah. she spies from our window, and then she wants to have her say. Yeah, I've been um, still walking my dog, although she's just had her, um, her sterilization. In fact, I've forgotten how we say that in English. But, um, and so I've not been walking her much because I really don't want her to bust her stitches or anything. And right. so she's looking at me a bit like, what is going on? I don't know what's changed. Why are we not going out? Oh my God, I'm so sorry, love. <laughs> um, so you're, uh, I know you have a great story about a pig. Was it the family, that, that family that you, they taught you how to um, slaughter a pig? Um, no, actually it was another family. It was... Um, they just invited you around one day. Hey, Kate. Wanna... <laughs> well, I'm not sure how that really happened. I have to think about. This is my ne my neighbors, the uh, Sabadinis, who have a farm at the up the corner of the road from me, and maybe I had just been buying eggs from them and some chicken, an occasional chicken. Which, you know, they would raise, but they had cattle. They raised beef cattle, the blondes of Aquitaine. 
in a what what in the states we would call cow calf operation where they have the mothers and then the, the calves they don't rear the calves they sell the calves they're reared by people other people for beef mm. but they always kept pigs um, for themselves uh, as every farm typically did and so I don't remember how but I do remember that it was a a year when I had um, a chef working with me on the barge, uh, Michael Hubert, who is a, a, a chef from the from the states, who came over and worked in the summer with me. And so, because I have those photographs of both of us, that, that we got invited up. I don't know. Yeah, we're going to we're slaughtering a pig, or they were making sausage or something. And so I said, Oh, I'm really interested in that. And uh, I had had a, an experience when I was really young, like in my 20s, when we were living back to the land where we raised some pigs, and I was, because I cooked, I was the one who had to do the butchering. But we were invited to go along the next time they did it, and um, so I saw the process from start to finish. I took a lot of photographs, and I was just astounded by the complexity and the beauty of the... Um, the effort and the the approach to producing food was it was just for their own family but I mean that was important that, that they were creating food for their family so it was pate and sausage and dried mm -hmm. sausages and um, boudin noir and oh, all the things that you know the uh, they say in French tout est bon dans le cochon everything's good and big <laughs> so they that was a like a, a, a two or three day uh, event with family members that came and tables were set out and the women were doing one thing and the men were doing another. It was, they, and there was like a studied performance because they've done this all their lives, and as children they grew up with it. And then there were multiple generations. There were uncles and grandfathers, and and it, the beauty of the whole thing just knocked me over. And that was. When I look at those pictures, they're quite romantic looking. The, there's no, there's not much blood and guts, but it was, you know, the faces of people as they were working and their hands. And mm. I just, I, I just was sucked in by that. And then I had an opportunity to go deeper, you know, uh, a decade later with the Chapelard family and working with Dominique and Christian Chapelard to the point where I eventually established a, charcuterie course for an introduction to butchery and charcuterie for professionals and um, farmers. Wow, that's amazing. It's, it's uh, a privilege uh, to be able to kind of knock on a door and walk in. And I think that that's what being an outsider that can do for you. Mm. Um, we, we, you might be now a friend said, Oh, you're an inside outsider, but I still, <laughs> I'm that I still being outside, but asking to come in. And I found that most people, my neighbors in the area here, especially were very proud of what they did and they wanted to share it. And also maybe I came at a time. I know I definitely, when I would talk to some of these women, I came at a time when their daughters, you know, it was in my early 30s, mid thirties, their daughters were often, Toulouse or Paris working mm. for an insurance company or something. And I was knocking on their door saying, can you show me how to fix a pool of pole? Mm. And they were, they were delighted to be able to share their expertise 
with somebody. And that's how I felt all along that I might be um, coming in as sort of the naive observer, but I was an appreciative audience to their work. And it's a, it's an interesting thing I talk about when I when I work with journalists who come or you know filmmakers often come look me up and mm. um, they want to come and see something and I say well you're going to see people you know put on kind of their their mantle of of expertise and because they're proud of what they do and it comes through and I think that. It's something we kind of forget about that there's what seems like a very humble thing. Making sausage is really an art mm. and it, it can be an art. Let's put it that way. It can be an industrial, horrible thing, or it can be something that's created with love and attention and a lot of care because this is food and it has to be preserved and you can't, don't want to squander. You've raised a pig for a year mm. and fed it. You don't want to squander that effort or its life or any of the the above yeah when i go to my local um um organic store there's lots of vegetables there's quite a there's a couple of vegetables i'm like i don't i don't understand i don't know what they are mm. um but that is also the place where i first found kale i was so excited i think i i facetimed <laughs> my friend from the store going oh my god you won't believe what i've just found you know and um <laughs> And and yet, you know, when I went to the to pay, they they the woman looked at it a bit like I looked at a couple of the vegetables in the store, going, "What the hell is that? What kind of turnip is that?" And she looked at it, going, "What is this? Kale? Shuk? What?" And I'd say, "It's just so easy to cook, and it's great." And you know, they're like, "Oh, it's," you know, and and she thought that it was new for me as well, <laughs> you know. Uh-huh. It's, it's kind of well, is it? Because there's always this time of year a kale. Well, I mean, there was a big, huge kale flurry a few years ago. But I, I have to remind people: the French have their own version of kale. Yeah, and it's something that every. It's so I kind of think I see these things seasonal foods as I mean kale may be grown in California year round, but it is. Uh, it's an autumn winter food. It's something that mm. will winter over. It's a green dark green hardy has a lot of nutrients these are there's a reason we eat kale through the winter maybe not so much in the summer because there are other things that you can you can use but in france they have the same thing in they call brut have you ever come across brut Mm -hmm. so i think what happens is that and i this was from my very first days with the pompel family i didn't know any of these things and i would go to the market with with they and she would I'd say, what's that? What's that? What's that? And then so she would buy anything that I said I had never had before. And brut are what I would call cabbage shoots. But they are actually, you know, it's when they've harvested the cabbage or, uh, and then the shoots, then the plant keeps growing. You cut it off the bottom and then the plant keeps growing or cauliflower or, I don't know that brute is a particular variety or if it's just this idea of the shoots. Mm. So you get these dark green, um, sturdy leaves that need to be cooked like kale needs. I mean, some people eat kale raw, but I don't think it's interesting for me. (laughs) And um, 
It's like, yeah, I don't, I'm not, I like cooked food, I have to say. Mm. So Groot, B-R-O-U-T-T-E-S is what you would ask for. And it's sort of this time of year that you would find it in the, in the rural, in the country village markets. I don't see it very much anymore because there's few, there's not grown commercially. It's only people who have a patch of it, who are, who will harvest this little handful of green things. So to me, it's like gold. You know, when you said kale, it's like, oh, brutes. <laughs> so I, I still, I don't see kale ever in my country markets here, but I see lots of other greens. And turnip greens are another thing. As an American, in England, do you eat turnip greens? I don't know. I probably would say no, but then maybe deep country who who knows Maybe because i yeah because my experience yeah is from kind of southwest southeast you know and so it, it also has made it clear to me that that there's there can be loads of things going on <clears throat> excuse me there can be loads of things going on you know up north in the countryside i wouldn't know because i it's not my experience you know yeah, I think that, you know, in America, turnip greens is very, also very regional it's of the southeast. It's in the, you know, what we call the deep south. You you know, the recipes for collard greens, and which mm. were I think, a Native American plant. Turnip greens, um, anything that you had to cook. Um, so it got tender, but then you would cook it with uh, a ham hock or a piece of pork belly or bacon, you know, something to give it flavor. And so turnip greens here are just given to the chickens. So if you buy turnips, if, if you go to the market and there are fresh turnips with the greens attached, the market vendor would typically twist those off and put them aside. Mm. And at the point when I, I had, I had chickens, I don't have any chickens right now, but um, when I do have chickens, I would always say like where the carrots I want with the greens on, cause I'll give them to my own chickens and, mm. So that I realized, like, oh, my God, he's got a whole box of turnip greens back yeah. there. I said, what are you going to do with those? And he said, you know, no, nothing much. And I said, could I buy those? And he mm. thought it was mad. But I brought home a whole wooden box of turnip greens, which when you cook down, isn't that much. Mm. So um, they, but they're delicious. They're very much a, a something of the South in that kind of, family cooking that we, you know, yeah. yeah. The other thing that I've uh, come across where there's a kind of a lost in translation moment is when I talk about stock, chicken stock or beef stock, you know, um, and, and they, they look at me and think, I mean, the, the little cubes, you know, to add flavor to a, a dish. And I, I'm talking about bone broth, you know, really. And um, they, they look at me a bit weird, but I always wonder whether, you know, some of those older ladies or in in their kitchens, it's something they do, but it's just not been popularized, maybe. I don't know. But I go to the butcher and I ask for the, the bones and they look at me a bit like, is it for your dog? <laughs> so one of the things I'd love to talk about is this idea that, bro you know, broth is or isn't something, chicken stock isn't something that you, you know, you here you would find in a in a box in you or a can and you would add it to every recipe like actually most recipes that i grew up with added a can of chicken stock to it for no good reason other than it added flavor to something that didn't have much flavor here what i find in 
in France and particularly this part of France, soup is a tradition. Everybody, soup is served at every meal. And if you go to a little village cafe, it's not even on the, the menu du jour, won't have soup or potage. They just bring it. And mm. it's, it's like obvious we were going to bring soup first. And, and that soup and bouillon comes not from in homes, not from cans and in cubes. I mean, people do add magic cubes or, you know, to things mm. here when they cook occasionally. But when you're actually cooking the dishes, the regional dishes, like a poulet po, you cook a chicken in a pot with vegetables, you're making stock, right? So you're you're eating the chicken, you're eating some soup, and then the rest of the week you're eating that you're using that soup or stock through, but mostly as soup rather than adding it to recipes. Because mm, okay. I think we've gotten off track. I think the idea of adding stock to something to flavor it is very for me. It's very restauranty. The idea of like a a pot of I've never walked into a French kitchen and seen a vat of veal bones, you know, cooking and making a veal stock. That's a restaurant. Mm. What women did at home was they made a pot of soup every weekend, like on the Sunday. And then they would use that dish, that soup during the week as part of the meal, but not to cook things with it. You'd, because when you cook something, I'm trying to think of a recipe. If I, if I did a veal, um, a veal dish, like a, uh, blanquette du veau. Mm. You don't add stock to it. I've seen re recipes in English where they add chicken stock or veal stock. I said this, the the veal or the meat in the dish is making its own stock. And yes, of course, you're putting in onions or shallots in, and yes, you're putting in a carrot, and yes, you're putting in some lovage and bay leaf and thyme. So you're essentially making a stock in the pot of, that you're braising in or that you're cooking in. So you don't need to add this, you know, this additional stock. Now, the idea of bone broth, you, you mentioned bone broth. It's sort of a, for me, it's a, it's a trend and it's, there's nothing wrong with it. But if you actually make soup with meat with bones in it, you, you just. You're going to get the same thing. You're just going to even get the same thing, but it's all in one. So like a pot au feu always has something with like short ribs and um, maybe a piece of shank because it has bone, the bones in it and the bones mm. add flavor to the, to the broth that makes the pot of fur, but you eat the soup and then you eat the meat separately. Yeah. So it's, it's a, uh, I think learning to cook here is paying, is looking and paying attention. And for me, of course, going back to the source, which is not even books, cookbooks, because they can be very misleading. And having written a few, I can tell you it's very difficult mm. not to mislead because um, to try uh, to try to put down what you do to make something taste good is really difficult. Well, it's, a, it's an art. It's like a, a, an artist, a painter trying to explain how to make a certain color. I mean, yeah. how the hell do you do that? It, it, it's the nuances involved must be just so detailed that it's just you, you can give an idea, but that's what you said. You teach, but other people you have to learn. You have to put the time in, and you have to get it wrong and figure yeah. it out. You know, in the class I did this week at my uh, Camp Cassoulet, which is my live Zoom class, <laughs> mm. that I never thought I would ever say those words together with cooking. It was very interesting for me to uh, so actually some people were cooking along, which was 
great. And other people were just watching. Um, there people had questions about ingredients, but you know, where do I find the beans or I, can I use a smoked ham hock or we can't find saucisse de Toulouse here, you know? So mm-hmm. obviously a lot of talk about those, those basic ingredients, but really the more nuanced thing is what should this taste like? If you've never tasted a cassoulet, how do you know what it tastes like? Mm. You can combine all the ingredients in the right way, but you don't have a reference for what it tastes like. It can taste delicious. And I'm sure if you put beans and meat and, and you make a broth, I make always, when I cook my beans, I'm making a broth that they're, you know, with uh, legumes, vegetables and seasonings in it so that that's what's making the cassoulet extra delicious. Mm. But if you don't know what's supposed to taste like, and that's why we travel to taste these things, to go to the place, to have them. I mean, it's not one reason we travel <laughs> is good for out cooks. It's not the only reason, obviously. But I find cooking online is now the more difficult thing is how do I describe what this should taste like? Yeah. And so I use a lot of things like the mouthfeel, textures, um, how, how much salt do you mm. put in a your cooking you have to taste it and you might like it saltier than i like it it doesn't mean that my dish is better than yours or the other way around so it's like going online to do this is it's, it's going to be a lot of of uh, i think it's going to be a lot of discussion but like anything you have to practice and that the artist who creates that shade of blue didn't do it one time he did it over and over and over or she did it over and over and over until that was just right. And that's how I feel about cooking. Like if you're going to make a pie crust, you don't make it once and say, oh, that didn't turn out very well. You make it over and over and over until you don't even think about it anymore. So that now if, you know, if I, it's my favorite thing to make is, is actually a pastry crust because it's so easy and people think it's so hard. So you get a lot of, get a lot of pats on your back for something that's not difficult. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you just released your book. Uh, there was a 25-year anniversary, is that right? And you've put it online. Yeah. Tell, tell us about it. Well, it's part of the COVID story. I think we all have our uh, these COVID stories. And um, for me, it was I was sitting here in the, the beginning of things in the spring of 2020. And... Um, was pretty sad what was happening and my it was clear that my entire year was cancelled of or at least you know the spring summer my clients who would come to work with me here weren't going to be able to come and and then as it turned out they you know the whole year was gone but Mm -hmm. I had a, a very dear friend who um happened to go into confinement in Bordeaux. So uh, she was staying with me some for some time and we would go back and forth about what can we do, things we should do. And I said, you know, it'd be nice to get my first book that was published in 1995. is called Culinary Journey in Gascony. And it's been out of print for a long time, but sort of copies circulate around. But when I look at it, I love the recipes in it because they were the first recipes I learned. It was sort of my first few years here. And so um, Elaine, who is my friend I'm referring to, is an artist, but she's also very technical and has worked as a graphic designer for a newspaper in New York for many years. And she said, oh, well, let's just put an ebook up. You know, we just do, and, and it, 
we'll just copy, you know, the text. I and I said, but I don't have the photographs. You know, the publisher have those; they're all gone. I don't know where they're at. And and then eventually it became a project that not only would we just sort of put the book up uh, on as an ebook, but actually recreate a new edition. Then I decided I didn't want to use the old photographs I had hanging around. I wanted to take new ones. Mm. So I spent um, a couple weeks in midsummer driving around to, to these places on the canal that I, I talked about and took photographs. And then I took photographs of the, some of the food, some of the recipes, and then we found some lovely, funny snapshots of me as a as a young captain when I was driving the barge because this book was about was based on a, a week's trip on the barge from from the Bordeaux area to Camont and how mm-hmm. what I discovered along the way. So putting that book up as an ebook was a great project. I thought it was sort of an end of what things would be done by COVID and we get back to normal. But it's not only are we not back to normal, but it's kind of spurred other things, which is a series of videos that mm. I'm filming now that will go cooking videos that will uh, go along with the book. Great. And and, um, and then we've just put Castellet, which is my uh, a book that's been in print for five years and. Uh, we've just put it up now online as an ebook and a print on demand. So we, so Elaine and I decided we needed to have a little uh, press, a little imprint of our own, and that's yeah. that's probably going to be some of the going future for me going forward. I have a lot of material. I have 15 years of blog posts that I've written with great seasonal recipes because I tend to write things as I, you know, as the moment. Mm. is not just you know kind of by a a schedule and mm. and so i think um making books is good and i love to write is going to be continue to be a part of what i do um and i don't That's think great. i'll ever go back to exactly to what to what i did how i did what i did i think i'll continue to move forward online and in press but isn't that great to, especially what you were saying about how how is it it's tricky to kind of um, convey how something can taste when you put videos together with the recipe book, you you can bring it alive in a in a new way. Yeah, and I think that that sense of watching, uh, you know, it's one thing to describe something, give you a list of ingredients and a procedure and how to put it together, but watching somebody cook is you can learn a lot. As I mm. said, that's really how I learn. Tasting is the next thing, and I. Um, I think that that's, you know, the part of the, you know, response Then I always ask people at the end of the class to please write what it did, did it taste delicious. <laughs> so yeah. I had a friend test some, when I, this book, A Culinary Journey, first came out, I had my friends test the recipes because I couldn't afford to hire a re- recipe tester. Mm. And so um, one of my friends, who's not a, nat- a natural cook at all, but very eager to help she tested one little recipe was for uh, using fish, uh, a little trout, stuffed trout dish. And when I asked her, I said, so how did it come out? She said, it was, well, it was good, but it was very, very sour, very tart. I said, mm. really? Why? And she said, well, I think maybe a whole lemon is too much. Like, <laughs> oh, my God. Because I would written in the recipe instruction a squeeze of lemon. Oh, to me, no. a squeeze of lemon is just like, 
that fast. You just squeeze a it over. A little drop, yeah. And she squeezed the whole lemon and put it on this poor little trout. So that was my first effort to realize, like, oh, in cooking, writing recipes is very difficult. Yeah. Watching is actually easier in some ways. For sure. So, so tell us if, if somebody wants to find your book or join one of your classes, where can they find you? Well, the best place to go, of course, is on my website, which is uh, kitchen hyphen at hyphen Kamant, kitchen at mm-hmm. And or if you Google Kate Hill, France or Kate Hill, Gascony, you'll come up with that website probably um and then on the website i have information that leads you into the the online classes and also the books that are available and the um the ebook is now also on amazon as well as castle book will be after this week we're just putting it up on amazon to reach a wider audience but if you've already hearing my voice please go to my website because it's a better uh, economic situation for us direct indeed <laughs> and you still do you're going to be doing the cook-alongs on instagram how does that work uh, uh not on instagram on um through zoom well they actually oh, wanted right. to set up a class structure so if you want to do a cooking class with me or or uh live or the video you go through a portal that i'm uh, that i'm using a teaching platform called thinkific this all through my website. So you just Great. go to my website down that path and then you sign up and pay and do the homework. I, you know, there'll be a download of the book. So you don't have to buy the book. Book comes with the class. Um, but I also do some live things on, and I will be doing some more things on Instagram. I thought I'm trying to figure out exactly how to do, I want to do a cook, a, um, want to do sort of a, a live webinar webcam thing on making duck confit because I that's coming up this season. Wow. And it's something that's very difficult for people to do um, outside of France because of having access to the kind of fat ducks that we get here, yeah. the fatted duck. Um, but I want people to see it in the way that I was able to experience my neighbors at the, my neighbor's farms or in my friend's kitchen I think I sort of think that's what this should be like. There should be like an eye in the sky over my kitchen as I do this. Great. Sounds amazing. I'm definitely going to be uh, coming along. I need, I need to fix, sort my cooking out a bit. <laughs> good. Good, good, good. And I do, I do do things on Instagram. And, and again, you know, all that information is on the website, but you can also look at me at Kate DeComont on Instagram and so to see what happens around here on the quiet morning where the dog and the cat are both finally taking a rest. That sounds great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. Thank you, Karen, for having me. It's been great. If you enjoyed this episode of I Am French and would like to find out more, you can go to www.karenfrenchinfrance.com. And you can also find me on Instagram at I am French Podcast. Merci.